0: Do you have any faith in this country? Do you have any hope that this country can that it can get back to or was it ever good? I mean, what do you think about the future when you think about it? I don't think they want it to get better. Because you couldn't do the actions that you're doing and the stuff that you're letting happen if you wanted this country to get better. I hope it get better. Do you love America? No, seriously, I'm asking you, do you love this country? Do you love America? You're supposed to say yes, by the way. American patriotism isn't really optional. Even if you're my childhood friend, Shamrace Mims, that's who you just heard. And you've seen this town that you grew up in grow hollowed out by drugs and a failing industry and be completely left behind in that apocalyptic kind of way. Even if it's a colossal understatement to say that you don't trust the government, even if you have really good reason to think that the system is literally stacked against you, even then, you're still supposed to say that you love this country. I'm Carvel Wallace, and this is Closer Than They Appear. And today, we're going to talk about love. Love for our country and for the complicated humans in our lives and for ourselves. And we're also going to talk about power, specifically political power, and whether or not we can pursue political power with love. We're going to talk with two people who have either had political power or have fought for political justice in this country and who think that having and fighting for political power is, in fact, a good way to make things better for all of us. One man who thinks leading America is a worthy goal is Van Jones. You can't lead a country that you don't love. He's a CNN political commentator, a short-term employee of the Obama White House, a longtime environmental anti-prison and civil rights activist. He's got a new book out. It's called Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Can Come Together.
1: We now have people who are on hair trigger Mm. to respond to any Mm. soundbite, any tweet, um, and to be a part of this so-called call-out culture.
0: He argues that the left is going to have a hard time gaining and maintaining political power if it's all about calling people out over little things.
1: So instead of uh, calling people in or calling people up, we call them out Mm -hmm. and we drag them. We're going to drag them, Mm -hmm. drag them on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I don't live on Twitter. Uh, I get paid the same whether you like me or not on Twitter. Um, People have decided that unless you say all day long and only, I hate Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. that you're a centrist. Now, I'm on the left side of Pluto.
0: But still, I did wonder what his younger, more strident, 1990s self would have thought of these ideas. When you were in 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 that time, in that part of your life, yeah. would you have advocated the same kind of reaching across the aisle to people who might be racist, people who might be alt-right at that time as you do now?
1: Yeah, well, look, I was always a little bit odd in that regard. Uh-huh. Um, I've always been clear. You know, I grew up in the rural South. I've always been clear that the big part of the system's genius is to trick poor black people and poor white people into fighting all the time. Yeah, That's a that's a part of the genius of the system. And so, um, of course, you have to reach out to people who might be racist in a white supremacist country who who are you going to reach out to? Um, if you're waiting for all the white people to, on their own, become non-racist, you're going to be waiting a long time. But people are tired of letting things slide.
0: Mm-hmm. People don't want to put up with it anymore. They don't want to say, uh, yeah, this guy's kind of a racist, but hey, we got to build a coalition. As black people, we have had to, in order to survive in this country, let racism slide Equivocate around it. Organizers say, "Well, this is terrible, but I, got, I have to put up with it because that's the way it is." We've been doing that for many, many centuries.
1: So, I, I, what century would, did black people do that in? Hmm? What century did black people do that in? What do you mean? I don't. I can't. I can't find a century or a decade where black people haven't fought against racism.
0: I'm not saying not fighting against it. I'm mm-hmm. saying that we've had to let it go to a certain extent in order to survive on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? So, I wonder if part of the issue isn't that people have people are just like. No more, never, no more, never.
1: I think, listen, I, I hope nobody's. I mean, look, I'm somebody who, you know, I don't just think about this stuff and, and, and write on my you know, Facebook page about it. I'm not actually out here fighting white supremacy on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, and part of the problem is I, I just think we're so detached from our own history. Nothing that you said is out of line with what I'm saying. Um, it's not, a, it's not, never for African Americans, and I can only speak for my own tradition, has it been a question of, lay down, and just say, yeah, as the boss. That is not how black people have it dealt. Mm-hmm. That's a false choice. Mm-hmm. My point is, we're going to have to find deeper strength. I think we're stronger than we know. But if we think that if all we have to do is keep critiquing and being outraged, that that's going to fix it. No, it's a deeper thing. First thing we've got to do is to recenter and reground ourselves in our own resilience, in our own histories of struggle, where we, frankly we've dealt with way worse than mean tweets you know, as black folks, as immigrants or whatever, way worse as women, Mm. way worse. We've got to reground in that deeper history of resilience. You know, um, when I came up in the 80s and the 90s, there was still actually a left, not a bunch of liberal fans of Barack Obama who are now distraught, but there was actually a left Mm -hmm. who understood that you have to build a movement that can govern, that can challenge bad guys, beat bad guys and govern.
0: But if that was effective, then why are we where we are now?
1: Oh, I think it was effective. Um, First of all, uh, you know, where we are right now is a year ago, liberals didn't do their job and let Donald Trump win. Mm -hmm. That's where we are. And when you let a fool like that win, foolish stuff happens.
0: But you believe that what we're experiencing now essentially can be traced back to as recently as a year ago? I mean, I know, I'm not trying to like... Yeah, I'm you're trying, trying to, to... Yeah, you are. Yeah, That's fine.
1: That's no. <laughs> <laughs> fine. <laughs> I'm not Yeah, you are. That's no, fine. No, no, but, but, I'm but, asking but, you like... It, because no, no, if,
0: the in other words, if that... Because the counter argument would be, okay, well, if that was, if that was so effective, then
1: why... How, how has our nation? Right, that, but right, that's yeah. but that's just but it's just that's a transparently foolish mm. thing to say, and I'll mm. tell you why. Mm-hmm. You can't. You have to ask yourself where were things in the forties and the fifties and the sixties, mm-hmm. and did the movements that we threw up against that get us out of where we were then? Mm-hmm. Transparently, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just had, uh, you know, uh, the Supreme Court recognized rights for lesbians and gays to get married. Mm-hmm. You had a black president. So transparently, those movements did a great job against those obstacles but the but the fallacy and this is what's ruining mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. the conversation on the left there's a false notion that there is a a one way arrow for history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that um you know that you can win something permanently that if you were do if you anything you did was good in nineteen forty mm. then it should have been a permanent victory, and no other changes. Uh, should ever happen. Mm. That's transparently a foolish argument. Mm. You have 10,000 years of human history mm. in which it was perfectly okay to chop people into small bits just because they were from another tribe on the other side of the hill. Progressives, leftists, we underestimate the heroism of our own cause. The idea that your tribe of people who you're supposed to respect the rights of is everybody... Every human? That is some new shit. That is some radical... Even just basic human rights. Don't even go to full left analysis. But just basic human rights for every human being? That's new on the earth. And the idea that that's an easy thing, an obvious thing, and if you had a good protest and you passed some bills, elected black president, it should be done. And if, in fact, you have to continue to refight this Mm. and refight this for another millennia, there's something wrong. No. That is the challenge that we have as human beings that the easy thing to do is always to divide people based on a problem the hard thing to do is to unite people based on a solution
0: van calls on us to be strong to dig deep again And again and again, again, we have to be strong and dig deep and be resilient. And he's right. That is how we won crucial victories in the 1950s and 60s. With phenomenal courage and strength and patience, we marched and faced dogs and fire hoses and stared down the faces of those who would lynch us. And the nation did budge. But then Martin Luther King was killed, and Malcolm X was killed. And so then maybe we weren't as patient after that. Maybe people have had enough of that. When will the right have to be strong, dig deep, be resilient? When will white people have to face their fears with patience and calm and spiritual courage? Why must it always fall on us? The need to gain political power is a real one. But the personal and spiritual toll is tremendous. My heart physically hurts. Even now, as I say these words, my heart actually physically hurts. And I know there are people who want to tell me, put that aside and focus on the task at hand. And I used to believe that. But I no longer believe that. I now believe that our hearts... Our pain? Well, wow. that is the task at hand. Hey, just to pause here to say that if you're enjoying this show, check out our Facebook watch page. That's where we're posting our video series that brings you more important stories from some of our favorite guests and others asking some of the same questions we're asking in this show. We're at Facebook.com slash Closer Show. Follow our page so you see new videos when they come out. And stay tuned till the end of the episode when we'll hear from some of you. I've asked questions. You've called with answers. That's coming up in a little while, but for now, back to the show. As you know, I like to ask other people to help me think through big questions. So I called it Rabia Chowdhury.
2: Uh, My name is Rabia Chowdhury. I am an attorney. I'm an advocate. I am an author and I'm a podcaster.
0: If you've heard Rabia's name, Maybe it's because you've listened to the podcast Serial. She's the lawyer who told them the story of Adnan Syed, who's been in prison since high school, accused of murder. On her website, her bio says she hopes to someday be the mother of the first female American Muslim president of the United States. I hope so, too. Robbie has got a lot of thoughts about what it means to do the work of fighting and how to take care of yourself as a human through all that. A couple of uh, months ago I got, I was interviewed for like this black history thing. And there were all these questions. And one of the ones that I continue to think about it is the person said, what do you think about when you're not thinking about race? And I realized no one ever asks me that. And so I want to pose the same question to you. What do you think about when you're not thinking about Islamophobia and justice? What's on your mind? What do you think about
2: it? Oh, gosh. Um, I love... I love a European uh, murder mysteries on TV.
0: <laughs> you mean like those, like those British ones where someone gets murdered in like a little town and then someone with a sweater has yes. to solve the crime?
2: Where were you on the night of Danny's death? Explain to me why that's... Horrendous. I love the British ones, <laughs> N- Norwegian ones. Uh-huh. I will read the <laughs> subtitles. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> you know, I love... I love good, good novels. I love literature. I, uh, I cook. I like to cook. Uh-huh. Um, I love music. You know, there's a lot of things. I love cats. I, I spent a lot of time this morning. Look at cat, looking at cat pictures on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of things, you know, I mean, I, I like
0: all of this is a part of her identity. And I hear that. I also secretly love watching some European murder mysteries This is one of the things that comes from being raised partially by this white woman from Connecticut is that we'd always be watching PBS and we were always watching like All Creatures Great and Small. So even today, if I'm flipping channels and there's some murder that takes place in some weird village or dale or some garden or something, I'm always like, "Ah, did Mr. Havershire do it? But that's not what some people see when they look at me. And that's not what some people see when they look at Rabia
2: you know i wear a headscarf right yeah i didn't i didn't for much of my life i have for the last 13 years or so who knows maybe going forward at some point i'd be like i don't want to anymore i don't know it's a personal choice Mm -hmm. um that is a that is an issue there are people who are made very uncomfortable with that choice that i make because to them it signals all kinds of things like you know oppression and subjugation of women and all kinds of things um Whereas it means something very different for me. But I expect people, even if they can never accept that it's an okay thing, like to them, it's personally reprehensible, that they have to tolerate and respect my choice.
0: She's developed this attitude because she's experienced other people's discomfort her whole life as a Muslim living in the United States. She told me this one story about when she was in middle school during the Gulf War her teacher wheeled a TV into the classroom so they could all watch American troops head into Kuwait.
2: And he asked, he was joking, but he had, the teacher asked me something about um, hey, can you call your uncle Saddam and tell him to back off or something like that? And I was like, what is happening here? <laughs> Who's Saddam? <laughs> I'm not from Iraq. <laughs> I mean, there were like layers there. It, part of it was I was embarrassed because it was in front of the class. I felt like this weird sense of responsibility for the Gulf War, um, <laughs> which I should not have had. Yeah. Uh, but also there was a part of me, and I think that maybe that even might be the moment that Awoke the activist in me because I was like, I need to educate you. Mm. I am not from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not Arab. I'm not Iraqi. I'm like, you know, not, what you've shown me, social studies teacher, is that mm. you know nothing about the world. <laughs> right. Um, and that has become a large part of my career, in fact, is, is just getting, trying to educate people to get it right.
0: Mm. Mm. <laughs> to get it right. <laughs> to be understood. Now, what Van Jones was talking
1: about is that we need to try and understand people who are different from us. If you don't want Donald Trump to be president, then you have to explain to me how your tactics will prevent that. Uh. And so what I would say is we should be in coalitions and in struggles with people who we don't like and who don't like us for the purpose of being able to have a Barack Obama versus a Donald Trump.
0: But what Rabia is talking about is the desire to be understood, to have your white teachers and friends and authority figures and neighbors understand your humanity. That is what people like us fight for, I think. That is why I write, that's why I'm doing this podcast. I asked Van Jones what gives him confidence, that he can connect with so many different kinds of people.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I I just have a a confidence in the power of dialogue and storytelling Mm. um, more than anything else.
0: And I agree with him on that. We understand each other by sharing our stories. So I shared one with Rabia, and I'm going to share it with you. I was raised by a single mom who was 19 years old when she had me Wow! and we went through a year of homelessness when I was in second grade. We were living in this apartment. My mother was born in the 1950s. By the time she left home in the early 70s, her world had changed tremendously. The fight for civil rights no longer wore a tucked in shirt or a tie and a hat, but only outdoors. The new civil rights wore sunglasses in the house, refused to cut its hair, carried guns, and wasn't about to march peacefully anywhere.
3: Black people, we are organizing to stop racism. You it? When you stop racism, you stop brutality.
0: For my mother, these were heady times black was beautiful she was free to be herself in her skin the future looked bright the revolution would come my mother she was how do you describe her she was fanciful and free-thinking and ambitious she was playful and dramatic and sometimes dishonest she was wildly beautiful she was reckless and manipulative Shrewd and clueless. But then we experienced our first year of real homelessness. We slept on couches, we shared bedrooms in strangers' homes. I spent the entirety of my second grade year like this, with my head down, quiet and hungry, and staring the abject in the face the way that kids sometimes do. My memories of my mother from this age are just an image. A young woman beset with an ancient, multi-generational stress. She chewed the inside of her lip. She picked at her still adolescent acne. She would chug Coca-Cola and smoke cigarettes compulsively. Sitting in the driver's seat of our Pinto, hunched over the wheel, the weight of a small world on her slender shoulders, darkness encroaching, an empty highway beyond the windows and cold winter nights looking for a place for us to stay. I still remember one night watching her cry in the front seat. I tried to comfort her, I think. I don't remember if I did or not. Anyway, on these hungry, cold nights... It did not seem to matter that black was beautiful.
2: Have you ever spoken about that moment with your mom? I, I'm curious. Did you ever? You mean with her? Yeah. Did you say? I, did you ever tell her? You know, I remember that happening.
0: You know, it's interesting. My she 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 died uh, in 2008. She died of lung cancer. She was a. Oh, I'm sorry. She was a. That. Thank you. She was a pack a day smoker. <laughs> anyway, she died at. F- or young at 55 or something like that 54 55 and we never I never I never really explored this moment with her um because it, it didn't really occur to me that it was a major moment in my life until after she was gone and
2: yeah I mean I'm asking that because you know my when I separated from my husband my ex-husband it was a really traumatic separation Mm. Uh, my daughter was my eldest daughter was four at the time We, we had one child um and you know she's one of those people who has always been she's 20 now um from four years of age to 20 she's just an extremely quiet person who mostly comes across as just happy and content and i always wonder what she remembers what was hurtful what she hasn't been able to say you know, to me and her father about that time. Um, and that's why I ask the questions. Do you hmm. remember stuff Did you talk about? it? Like, because mm. I wish I could get into her head, you know, sometimes, and maybe at some point I'll have the courage to try it.
0: Is it, is it that you haven't, you haven't asked her because it's, it would be difficult to hear.
2: I think it's, I'm almost afraid. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of finding out that she had a lot more awareness mm. Of the of what was happening around her, the ugliness around her than, than I wanted her to have. and um, you know the culture that I come from like we uh, South Asians, m- immigrants in general, Muslims for sure, it's just not part of our culture to do to go through counseling and therapy mm. and we just tuck it all away um, and just and just you know forge on.
0: You have to talk about stuff. You can't just forge on because eventually you break down. The anger is too much. The hurt is too much. The task of survival asks of you this superhuman strength and you just can't do it alone. You have to get help from others. You have to talk about it and unburden yourself and process it. You have to be vulnerable. Even when it's terrifying. But then I always wonder how safe I am to do that. I've told people that I thought I could trust about the deepest parts of my racial hurt, only to have them turn it against me and call me angry and depressed or dangerous. It's always about striking some kind of impossible balance between acknowledging what hurts and how deeply it hurts, and yet somehow being positive enough to keep going. You do this work. How do you know it's making an impact? How do you gauge success? And I wonder like, how you navigate through that.
2: You know, many activists and advocates will spend decades working on maybe a single issue and not see success on it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not value in them doing it. You might do the work forever and maybe never see it. Maybe two generations from now it'll be seen. But it doesn't make, mean mean you you abdicate your duty to do the work. Mm-hmm. So it really hurts me uh, when I see from the outside now um, in different movements people saying, "Well, you're a sellout because you decided to work with this institution or you you took that that position." And despite like you know, you'll have people who have spent years working on issues suddenly they'll take a, a position in government or s- media or somewhere, and all of a sudden, all the grassroots people are calling them sellouts. And I, and I think that is so short-sighted. What you need to do, think about, you need, a, a, you need people pushing, you need people pulling, you need people writing, you need mm. people in power, you need all of it. Mm. And every person you can get who, from your movement, who then goes on to have any kind of public influence, you know, keep that person in your circle and use it. That's leverage. But this is, a really, um,
0: this is a really interesting debate, though, because what I, what I hear when people who are grassroots types on the left, who are like the sort of more hardcore than thou types who we all know and grew up with, um, when they're like a, such and such a person to sell out because they went to such and such an institution or took such and such a fellowship, what they're really saying is the system is so fundamentally rotten that there's no way you could get in and still be about the work. Like that, that, in other words, instead of you changing the system, the system's gonna change you. Then that's a fact. And um, I wonder what you think about that.
2: I think um, I, comp- I personally completely disagree with it. I'm not, so, mm. here's the problem. Yeah. What is the alternative? Like, give me a better plan and maybe I'll listen to you. Mm. Um, there's no better plan other than us taking the institutions and reshaping them one person at a time. Mm. We're not gonna dismantle the government, it's not gonna happen. We don't want chaos. We don't want anarchy.
0: The lesser of two evils. Choosing between an imperfect system or no system at all. Working one person at a time. I mean, when you put it like that, you can argue that the choice seems clear. Basic, in fact. You have to continue to work within the system to make incremental progress. But then you look at how much progress hasn't been made. Do you think things in America are getting better or worse?
2: I mean, it depends on the, me- the, the thing you're measuring <laughs> <laughs> and it took like in the last year and a half or so for it to all kind of come to a head and People now saying, oh, yeah, I guess this is a thing. I guess these are issues that we should be concerned about. And so to that extent, I think it's good um, that there's such a level of awareness and solidarity between uh, a lot of groups that didn't exist before. But the polarization, obviously, is really scary. You know, like where where are our limitations as a society? I mean, do we really have to respect Nazis? I mean, like what? Do you think we do? Look, if people want to go around saying I hate black people and I hate Jews, they have the right to do it. But we also should designated as hate speech and we should not give them platforms. We shouldn't be interviewing them and putting um, covers of them on magazines saying, look how dapper they are. Um, <laughs> that's the problem. I mean, like, I, I, you know, I don't know what's happened to the media in terms of their own um, like sense of common sense and decency uh, in giving these people platforms that they don't deserve.
0: And the other thing I, I actually think is even more pressing is that people have people, when people look at certain, figures on magazines with their dapper tweed jackets and haircuts. What they see is not an other, but a version of themselves, a version of their families, a version of their friends, a version of their little brothers, a version of their little brother's friends.
2: I, I look, I um, have a lot of family in Pakistan and some of them hold the same kinds of ridiculous views, but because that's my family member, like I can actually sit down and talk to them and I can also understand, like, I'm not going to sympathize with them, but I can, I know how to intervene in those conversations i know how to get them like i know because i also know that they're not evil that you know like the relative i'm speaking to who is like totally off their rocker that that's not an evil person but they've been fed a load of crock mm. right that they're getting their they're getting their information from the wrong places they've had life experiences that don't expose them to anybody people who have never met a non-muslim in their life right right they've grown up in these little circles so it's not so much that um we see them we see ourselves in them but that but that we just understand more about them and I think that is important
0: someone very close to me just revealed that they have what I would consider pretty aberrant views on gay people and their views are backed by religion so in their mind those views are non-negotiable and yet I love this person I still love them I will always love them. I would eat dinner with this person. I would go to a museum and take a walk and stay up late into the night with this person. But would I lead a country alongside this person? Do I think this person should have the political power to enact their beliefs? When you have irreconcilable differences, differences like this, sometimes love just is not enough. I keep thinking about the word hope actually. And uh I mean, do you have hope for the future? For your kids, for yourself, for your community? Yeah,
2: I do. I do. Um also my husband's Canadian, so if we needed to, we just <laughs> I am Um I'm I'm kind of kidding but not really, but yeah. um No, I do. I mean, look, I I think the world seems like it's on fire just because we're getting the news immediately, because Mm -hmm. we're so connected, because we see it. But if you kind of look at kind of a lot of the metrics, you know, hunger and poverty are lower than they've been in much of history. You know, infant mortality is lower. We're living longer. We have better lives. I mean, there are many measures that give me hope, you know um, war, famine, disease, we're doing a lot better on those fronts on a global level. Um, and so I, I do have hope. And the other thing is like, what's the alternative? The alternative, I'm always like, what's the alternative? That's always Mm. my question. If the alternative is to have no hope, that's not, that's, that's not even (laughs) a possibility, right? Because that just means, what do you do with that? I don't know what to do with that. Mm. So I know you have to, and again, I'm a religious person. This is all this is to, for us, for people of faith. And I know it's not just Muslims. It's for anybody of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all just in passing. We are going to be here for a blip of time and, 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 and be done with it. And so for our little blip of time, you do the best you can.
0: At the end of my marriage, my wife and I could not communicate. There was too much hurt, too much resentment. We could not hear each other. But we had a family to run, kids to raise. So we had to end the union to save the relationship. But that was just the first step. We also had to be honest about our own shortcomings. We had to make direct amends to one another. And then we had to, in a sense, give up on ever trying to get what we wanted from each other. But we both had to do the work And each of us had to trust that the other was doing that work. So even though we were apart, we still had to do the work together. That is how we saved and made a working relationship out of a fractured one. But the thing is, there are relationships that I haven't done that with. People I once loved that I haven't seen in decades. And... I have to deal with that because you can't be together if you're not together. Next week, I'm going to seek some wisdom from Eva Patterson, a civil rights activist who's got a long-term view on this country, on whether we can go forward and whether we can reconcile. And also, I'm going to turn and face my own past I'm going to sit down with the white aunt who raised me from ages 8 to 13. It's time to go visit my auntie. But first. So my name is Scott, and this is a message from my dad. You've been calling me and telling me about words that went unsaid to people in your life. And it's been amazing to hear all of your stories. Like this one from Scott in Texas. You raised me to be a certain way, Dad. You raised me to be considerate of others, to try to work hard, to try to play by the rules, and to try to think the best of those around me. And when mm-hmm. you voted for the man who occupies 1,600 Penn right now, mm-hmm. you put yourself in league with people who betray every ideal you ever held. Mm-hmm. And it breaks my heart, and I don't know You're one of the most fundamentally decent, honorable, hardworking men I've ever met in my life. And you're a great father, and you still are. I just hope that we can get to a point where we can actually get back on the same page. I love you. Thanks. We also heard from Hassan in Illinois. He told us about growing up in a small town and what happened one day when he was a teenager. He was rushing to work, and he accidentally almost caused a car accident with a man in a large
1: truck.
3: He comes out of the truck and very aggressively walks up to me and he says, well, you better learn how to drive or you can just go back to where you came from. So um, I I guess I would say to this man, I get it. Listen, I get why you were mad at me. Um, I could have caused a huge accident. It could have been a big problem for you. I want you to consider for a moment when you looked that skinny kid in the eye in that parking lot and you told him that he did not belong in the country that he was born and raised in. I don't know if you're a Islamophobe or a racist, but you are clearly someone who does not see equal humanity in your fellow man. And uh, I hope that you make some Muslim friends. I hope that you talk to other people and interact with people who are not like you. I hope that you expand your perspective on life. And uh, I hope that you choose to educate someone instead of yelling at them and berating them and making them feel like they're, they don't belong.
0: Thank you so much to everyone who's been calling in. This is really my favorite part of the show. And I've been asking you to tell us what you'd say to someone that you don't want to talk to. But now I'm going to change that up a little bit. Now I want to hear what happens when you actually have those conversations. Did you find forgiveness with this person? Did you find reconciliation? Or did you just decide to go on loving someone despite your differences with them, despite their belief? I want you to call and tell us your story at 949-522-5587. That's 949-522-5587. Leave a voicemail. You don't have to use your name if you don't want to, and you might hear your message in a future episode. You've been listening to Closer Than They Appear from Jetty Studios. I would really love to hear from you. So write the show or a review on Apple Podcasts or find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Closer Show. And you can always find links to episodes and full transcripts on our website, closerthantheyappear.fm. Our senior producer is Casey Miner, our producer is Lacey Roberts, and our editor is Leela Day. Graylin Brashear and Paulina Lemonnier run our social media, and our associate producer is Meredith Hodnot. Our show is engineered by Mark Bame, with mixing and sound design by Ian Koss. Music is by Antique Naked Soul. You can hear more from them at antique-music.com. Megan Jones runs our podcast operations, and Jessica Wang is our senior video producer. Special thanks to Dina Takruri and Matt Haney for helping us get Van Jones. Jetty's executive producer is Julie Kane and general manager is Kezar Kampwala. See you next week.
3: I